Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I connected with Dr. Lara Bryden. She is absolutely one of my favorite naturopathic doctors and author of two best-selling books, including The Hormone Repair Manual, which is a must-read for all middle-aged women. She has over 25 years experience in women's health and is currently consulting rooms in New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone and period-related health problems. We dove deep into her background as an evolutionary biologist, what got her interested and passionate about helping and supporting women throughout their lifetime. We talked about perspectives on aging. What exactly is the second puberty, perimenopause, the impact of histamine and mast cell granulation and estrogen, fat redistribution in middle age, and the loss of insulin sensitivity. We spoke at length on the impact of using alcohol how it impacts sleep, brain health, the gut microbiome, appetite, cravings, and impairs estrogen metabolism. We did touch on the net impact of ways to address dysfunctional uterine bleeding in middle age, including the use of synthetic hormones, IUDs, ablations, partial and full hysterectomies, how to advocate for your health, the impact of middle age on our nervous system, our mitochondria, and the role of inflammatory foods, including things like dairy. I hope you will enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Dr. Bryden is a wealth of information and really a positive voice in the health and wellness space. Dr. Bryden, it's so exciting to connect with you. I'm so glad that we ended up in the same hemisphere so that we weren't having so many challenges with coordinating calendars with you being in New Zealand. Exactly. I'm in Canada for the summer. So that worked out well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think you have such an interesting background. Did you know that you wanted to be a physician at some point because you started off as an evolutionary biologist, which I found so fascinating. I dove down a complete rabbit hole, but I would love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are really a, a big women's health advocate. Yeah. Okay. So yes. So I started out as a a biologist studying evolutionary biology. I worked in the field. I published a peer-reviewed paper about sex differences in foraging behavior, which is kind of prescient of what came later. I was planning to be an academic, actually a research biologist. And then in my kind of early to mid-20s, I just veered off. I decided I wanted to work with people. I was still very curious about biology and how the body works. And I felt like naturopathic medicine was a good fit for that, which it has been because a lot of it's about what the body can do for itself using nutrition to you know, work with the hormonal system rather than against it. So yeah, I, that was about 25 years ago. Now I changed careers and went into naturopathic medicine. And then just in general practice, starting out in general practice, I worked a lot with women and that's how that was the beginning of my passion for women's health because women's physiology responds so well to some fairly simple interventions sometimes. I'm sure men's health does as well, but I have less experience with men. So I'm so glad that you made that pivot in your life because you have such a fresh perspective and 
your book, the hormone repair manual, I recommend regularly to my patients and clients. And so one of the things that struck me about the book that was different than a lot of other books talking about perimenopause and menopause and aging was really addressing the mindset and the perspectives on aging. Because I think for so many women, they fear, they have this tremendous fear of the process of aging, how their bodies change, how they interact differently with their environment. I love that the message is about aging is allowed. And there is one quote that you use in the book with attribution that you don't owe your prettiness to anyone as, and as a woman that my parents really valued prettiness and, you know, being polished and being professional. And I think that in many ways, women get so caught up in the physicality of their lives that they may not per se work on the inside work, which I think is so much more important. I I have colleagues and friends that are navigating middle age easier than others. And I think in a lot of ways, the expectations, the external validation expectations Mm -hmm. of women and the physicality of being a woman Mm -hmm. can make it a very confusing time. And so this was a, a part of your book that really resonated with me because especially here in the United States, women aren't supposed to age. You know, that's the message. Know. You know, men can be a wrinkled old prune, but <laughs> women are supposed to look 25 years old for the rest of their lives. And I mean, who wants that kind of pressure? But that is definitely the message I think a lot of women receive. It is. And I I think I say in the book, I feared the loss of prettiness. I guess it all depends on how pretty you were to start with. I think how this goes, but, you know, sort of feared that, I guess, loss, invisibility or this loss of attention from men. But then I don't know about you, but once you actually get here, it's like, oh, actually, you know, that's fine. You know, I don't miss that. I don't need that. You know, life is short. We've got lots of other things to worry about and, you know, relationships. And there's still, you know, I think we fear this loss of sexiness, I guess, or loss of being a sexual being, but that doesn't happen. I mean, as you know, like I, we can still, we're still sexual in our, 50s and 60s and beyond, if we want to be, it doesn't have to look a certain way or, you know, fit into a certain box. And at the end of the day, the truth is, I mean, for anyone, I guess this immediately applies to women who are straight, but like, I guess, you know, women who are in same sex relationships might have a similar experience. Like, I think men care less about looks than we think they do. <laughs> no, I honestly, because they're aging you. too. And a lot of it's about heart connection and, you know, companionship and, you know, I don't know, maybe we're kind of veering off topic here, but sex it doesn't rely so much on prettiness the way we thought it did. It really doesn't. No. And I agree with you. And there's some degree of confidence. I know that you talk about as women are losing estrogen, they stop being people pleasers and I am a reform yeah. people pleaser. Yeah. And I was talking about this in a book and I was saying, you know, Dr. Bryden does this amazing discussion about the aging process. Yeah. And that really resonated. I'm like, well, maybe that's why in my mid forties, I started creating more boundaries. I started getting more clear about what was important and not feeling like I had to appease others that I really need to focus in on my family and what was healthiest. And I'm very grateful that, you know, my husband loves me at 50, the same way he loved me at 30. And in fact, I do agree with you hundred percent that our perception of what men are looking for and want, I think ultimately healthy committed adults, irrespective of what our relationships look like, really are looking for a partner that's going to be able to support them and 
love them irrespective of the amount of wrinkles or pounds or any of the things that we get so fixated on that really don't matter because true heart connection, even if it's in friendships is really based on a sense of togetherness. It is so much more than the external trappings of whether it's Hollywood or print magazines. Does anyone even read magazines anymore? That's one of the things I was saying to my kids the other day. I was like, I can't remember the last time I read a magazine. I read lots of books. I listen to books. I don't even look at magazines, but I think for many, many people, they're pleasantly surprised that navigating middle age is not what they expected it to be pleasantly. Absolutely. It's kind of, I mean, maybe this is overstating it, but it's a little bit like joining the party. Like it's mm-hmm. sort of like this, I kind of feel like, I mean, cause I'm 52. So my last period is a year behind me and I definitely feel this kind of surge in confidence that, but my patients talked about it and I never really understood. And I think it's a little passage in the book where, you know, maybe eight or so years ago, I was walking with my sister and she's like, look at all those women in their fifties and how much fun they're having. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I hadn't really noticed them cause they're kind of invisible. But then once you get here, it's like, oh, wow. So this is what this is about. It was nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, sending that message to women, because I, I'm sure much like you, you get messages from women kind of asking questions and there's so much fear. Like I remember fearing turning 40 yeah. and I didn't care as much about turning 50. It wasn't such a big deal, but I remember in my yeah. late thirties, like being so passively fearful of turning yeah. 40. And then I realized my forties were so empowering and so yeah. liberating in a lot of ways for many women. So what I think is important and what I wish I had known more about and why I think your book and your work is so important is even as a nurse practitioner, no one ever talked to me about perimenopause. I didn't learn about it in school. I trained yeah. arguably at one of the best medical institutions here in the U S no one talked to me about it. My mom never talked to me about it. Most of our girlfriends, it was almost like this silent shared experience that no one wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about. And so why do you feel like, or why do you think that there's such little awareness about second puberty or perimenopause? Because I feel like there's a lot of focus on younger women, contraception, Mm -hmm. pregnancy, postpartum. And then it's almost like women go out to pasture and and they become that invisible entity, but yet women spend 40% of their lifetime in menopause. So why are we not being more proactive as clinicians? Yeah. Well, a couple of things to say, I guess. I mean, I think part of it is the stigma, which we were talking about before. I think women Mm -hmm. don't want to kind of think that that's what's happening. And also I think it's sort of a lack of interest from researchers. Not, I mean, certainly there have been some researchers who are very interested. So we can talk about some of those today, but I think it just hasn't been on the radar, like so many things in women's health. And also a lot of, some of it, the confusion is to do with semantics or the words. So I might just define how I see it because we use the word menopause to kind of, you know, broadly as an umbrella term for the whole process, but actually perimenopause and menopause are quite different. And we'll put it this way. My experience clinically and reading the research is if women are going to have symptoms and not all women do. So that's important to acknowledge. Some women just don't notice anything, in which case I think it's important not to over-medicalize something that is just a normal transition and nothing to worry about. Although it still is a critical window to health. We can talk about that in a critical moment in time really for health, but perimenopause, most women, if they're going to experience symptoms, experience them in the anywhere between sort of three to seven, maybe up as long as up to 10 years before the final period. And then the year or two after the final period. So that whole time frame is called perimenopause. Well, perimenopause officially 
includes up until the final one year after the final period. And you don't know when that's going to be, right? Because you're always thinking, was that my final period? Oh, no, was that my final period? So that final phase of perimenopause can drag on for a while. And then depending on how you want to define it, the way I define it is menopause is the life phase that begins one year after the final period. That's the definition used by reproductive endocrinologist, Gerilyn Pryor, who helped me with both books. And I feel like, obviously she's my mentor. She, I feel like her take on the whole thing is very interesting. And so menopause is arguably, depending on how you define it, that is a relatively easy time. So there's a quote from Gerilyn Pryor where she says, women need to know that the turbulent time of perimenopause ends in a kinder and calmer phase of life called menopause. And that phase of life called menopause is sometimes referred to as post-menopause. Most of the research suggests that's usually a pretty easy time. So we have to be careful because I think people talk about, you know, (coughs) menopause being symptomatic. They're really referring to perimenopause and maybe just the year or two. And you don't want to give the impression that this is how you're always going to be now. Like if you're having night sweats and mood swings and anxiety and migraines, and we can talk about some of the symptoms of perimenopause, those aren't going to, even if you did nothing, they wouldn't continue forever. But of course, there are lots of ways to feel better. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop, and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com. E-Q-U-I-P foods.com slash Cynthia 20. You definitely want to check this out. 
Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorbro.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. But I think it's so important for women to understand, as you said, that it can be this kind of trajectory from the beginning of stages, late thirties, early forties, up until menopause. And I almost feel like in my own experience as a clinician, that what I typically see is the better women are taking care of themselves, the less symptoms they experience. And, you know, here in the United States, we have rampant metabolic inflexibility. We have, you know, growing populations of people that are just very metabolically unhealthy And I know a lot of the research that I've looked at, because it seems like for a lot of people, it starts with these vasomotor symptoms. They're having a lot of night sweats. They're getting sweats during the day. You know, people are gaining weight and they're really frustrated along with other symptoms, you know, breast tenderness and very heavy menstrual cycles. And so understanding that this is a temporary timeframe, that there are so many options that they can work with. I always focus on, you know, food-based options, lifestyle modifications as a kind of primary level of this is what everyone should be doing, you know, investigating our relationships with certain types of inflammatory foods and alcohol in particular seems to be a a big player in this. It was interesting. I just returned from a business event and ironically enough, most, if not all of the clinicians that I was attending dinners with and and interacting with almost all of them don't drink alcohol as one example. And for many of them just saying, it doesn't make me feel good. And I jokingly talk about the fact that I was never much of a drinker to begin with, but during the pandemic and having two years of not really doing as much socializing as Mm -hmm. we normally did, I said to Mm -hmm. my husband, no, the only thing that I notice when I drink alcohol, it wrecks my sleep and I get Mm -hmm. hot flashes. Otherwise I don't. And so because Mm -hmm. I preserve my sleep, so I make such a huge emphasis on sleep quality and enough REM and deep sleep, et cetera, that I just said, it's now, I'm now so protective of my sleep. I'm not willing to engage in that but I love that you kind of mentioned it's this temporary process. And so one of the things that really, again, resonated with me in your book was talking about as we're having these hormonal fluctuations, and I don't want to over simplify things and say, it's just about low progesterone and fluctuating amounts of estrogen. One thing that I've been seeing with greater frequency in many women 
is a degree of all of a sudden they have histamine response issues. All of a sudden yeah. they're getting hives and mast cell, you know, granulation and yeah. how this can be heavily influenced by these fluctuations in estrogen. And so I got a lot of questions about this specifically. So I'm okay. curious if you can kind of unpack this for us that how these hormonal fluctuations are ongoing during perimenopause can yeah. lend us to the propensity, the likelihood that we can have issues with histamine response. Yeah. So let's talk about just broad strokes, hormonally, what's happening. I mean, you've just kind of said it already, but I'll repeat it. So this is second puberty. It's quite analogous to first puberty in that first puberty is a time when our estrogen kicks in. We're quite sensitive to it and takes a while to ovulate so well to make progesterone. So that's why young girls, well, teenagers sometimes can have very heavy periods. That's kind of a mirror situation of the heavy periods that can happen in our forties when we lose progesterone first, because we just start having cycles where we don't ovulate or don't have as good a luteal phase. We're just making less progesterone overall. And at the same time in our forties, estrogen starts, it becomes uncontrolled basically. Like it starts spiking up to up to three times higher than it ever was before. And that is, that's a challenging situation because of course it's not going high and staying high. I mean, that wouldn't be nice either, but it's going up and down and up and down. And so when it spikes up, that's where potentially, especially if you have an underlying sort of immune system that is sensitive to that sort of thing, that's when some women can get a mast cell reaction like high histamine and stimulated by estrogen essentially, and not calmed by progesterone because progesterone normally has kind of an antihistamine effect. So we can definitely get this histamine. And that looks like that can contribute to breast pain that can make periods heavier. Actually, histamine plays a role in that certainly anxiety, insomnia. It's not the only reason for those symptoms, but it's contributing. And so typically symptoms will be around ovulation time if you're still ovulating or and, pre and or premenstrual. And one easy, just almost diagnostic technique, I do talk about in the book and I've written about it since then. You can just try some antihistamines. I mean, it's not necessarily the long-term solution, your longest term solution you're going to want to use, but at least it gives some insights like, oh yes, an antihistamine switched off these headaches, migraine, well, migraines are another one, headaches, you know, calm me down. And then you have that insight and then you can look at nutritional strategies and diet and gut strategies to, and supplements to calm histamine as well. So that can be quite helpful. I mean, I'll just say one thing about antihistamines. They're fine. Like it's fine to use them for a few years or short term. They can potentially contribute to weight gain. So that's another just kind of tricky aspect of that. And of course, this is in our forties is already a time when we are having a fat redistribution. It's not, weight gain is not even precise enough to describe what's going on. We are losing fat from our bums potentially, or, you know, and putting it on our waists and on our belly. And this is a fat redistribution. It's really clear in the research that this happens. In part, it's from a, you're losing estrogen and progesterone. So you're losing their metabolic benefits. And then also, this is something that I think is quite interesting. We'll become, because we're losing estrogen and progesterone, testosterone starts to shine through because both estrogen and progesterone have an anti-testosterone or an anti-androgen effect. And testosterone in women, you know, or excess levels of testosterone in women, causes weight gain around the middle. That's actually the PCOS situation. There is sort of a analogous thing going on between polycystic ovary syndrome and perimenopause. If your readers or listeners are familiar with PCOS, 
So we have that challenge as well. And what the research shows, you probably know this, but actually the waking around the middle is most profound during our perimenopause, late forties, early fifties, and then settles down potentially, which is gives us hope as well. If we're noticing this change in body shape, it won't always, it's not going to continue like this indefinitely, but we do not just for cosmetic reasons or, you know, stigma or beauty or anything we talked about at the beginning for very true health metabolic reasons. We do want to try to get, maybe not eliminate the change in like change in body shape. Because I think we're always going to get some thickening around the waist, but just stay on top of that from a metabolic perspective, knowing that that can increase the risk of insulin resistance, which is yeah, long-term has many risks. We could talk about that a little bit if you want that shift to insulin resistance and why that's what I call in the book, a critical window. No. And I think it's important because, you know, really understanding that estrogen has this beautiful insulin sensitizing aspects. And for so many of these women, you know, women that maybe have been CrossFit athletes at some point that then lean into over-exercising that they think if a little bit of exercise is good, then they're going to add in some fasting, then they're not going to sleep. And just understanding that as we are getting these fluctuations of estrogen, and I know that we'll talk about brain health, but insulin resistance, I think this is really when women are most at risk. Like if we are going to become insulin resistant and ultimately diabetic, this is that window that we really have to. And that's why I talk about the lifestyle so much. This is really when we have to lean into foods that inflame our bodies and why our sleep is so important. And so I would love for you to talk about this whole inflammatory process that's ongoing that is making us more susceptible. And then I'm hoping at some point we'll talk a little bit about HRT because I just came back from this event and in, during the Q and a, I was asked probably 10 times my thoughts on HRT. And so yeah. it, was, it was surprising that there's still, at least here in the United States, because of the women's health initiative, there is still this fear by clinicians, fear by patients yeah. to actually take hormonal replacement therapy. And yet I, my hope and my intent is always to help educate women so that they can have a conversation with their doctors, their healthcare professionals in a way that will be most beneficial for them. Sure. Yeah. And we could definitely talk about hormone therapy, but first just speaking to your question about this loss of insulin sensitivity, the way I see it actually is just to frame it a little differently. This is my view as an evolutionary biologist. We evolved to do this. You know, we, this is very clear now in the research that through several lines of evidence, but menopause is not an accident of living too long, arguably even as humans, both male and female, a longer human lifespan may have evolved due to positive selection pressure on women's post-reproductive years. So prehistorically, you know, we were women in their 50s, 60s have been very important for groups of humans. And that's just a fact. And we still know that in modern day forager peoples. So we're meant to do this. We're meant to be healthy through that time. I mean, by meant to, I mean, we physiologically have the capacity to be healthy. I think the, you know, even in ancient times, the biological lifespan of a human was 70, 80, you know, the average of that, the life expectancy is much lower because so many people used to die as children, sadly, and in childbirth and infections and all the hazards, all the ways that it was hard to live to old age historically. But I think for those individuals who were lucky enough to get through, they lived to 70 or 80. We know this from the fossil record now. So just to be clear, like it's menopause, even without hormone therapy is potentially can be a healthy time. Now, 
this is where the concept, and I'll try not to be too technical here, but this is where the concept of evolutionary mismatch comes in. Do you know that? Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. So this quite profound shift in our physiology that happens when we stop menstruating, you know, in a prehistoric, in a different time would have actually been fine. It would have actually almost been a superpower. Like we would have actually, in a way, arguably, because an estrogen, as well as making us more insulin sensitive, it actually increases our energy requirements. Like estrogen is, it creates quite a expensive metabolism. So then when, this is the way I've kind of flipped it, like our metabolism goes down when we're, when we end our reproductive years, but think about that in a historical perspective, we would have not needed as much food, right? Like we'd have been given all the starchy carbs to the children and breastfeeding, you know, pregnant women and reproducing women. And we would have been able to live on a leaner diet because we're potentially you know, good at going into ketosis and being metabolically flexible. So you can sort of see how in a traditional lifestyle, this would have been fine, this shift in metabolism, if that makes sense. And, but in our modern world, there are so many ways that this, what should be a normal shift in, in physiology and metabolism becomes really quite challenging. And one of the parts is the fact that our food environment is so high calorie, high, everything, high carb, not just that, but the alcohol you referred to, there's some evidence that exposure to environmental toxins can really mm-hmm. add to and kind of worsen, will create essentially symptoms of this transition. I'm pretty confident we have no way of, well, we know that modern day forager people don't report symptoms of perimenopause. They go through menopause, their periods stop, they know about it, they're happy about it. Generally, it's not a negative thing. So I you know, certainly the historic literature doesn't really talk about symptoms much at all until kind of relatively modern times. So I think the symptoms are real, 100%. I think they're in large part due to evolutionary mismatch, which is a lot of it's out of our control. It's not that people are doing something wrong or eating the wrong thing or, you know, anything like that. It's just the world we live in is not very supportive of this change we have to go through. Does that make sense? No, it does. And it, it makes me think about, you know, the cohort of women that go through transition from perimenopause to menopause. And then it makes me reflect on the women that are having partial or full hysterectomies at this time in during this time frame. And it makes me think back to, gosh, I was probably 42 and happened to have my annual GYN exam on the first day of my period. And I was telling my GYN, I have very heavy periods. Yes. And so she examined me and said, Oh my gosh, you do have very heavy periods. I said, well, I wasn't kidding. And you know, the milieu of options for kind of traditional allopathic medicine runs along the synthetic hormones, an IUD an ablation or hysterectomy. And she of course discussed each one with me. And so I would love to kind of touch on, because I oftentimes receive a great deal of questions across the continuum about women who've either electively chosen any of those options, but especially a partial hysterectomy where she still has her ovaries or a full hysterectomy. And many times at which they're not fully informed about what is going to happen to their bodies and and how the kind of normal transition into menopause is disrupted. And so I think it would be very helpful for listeners to get your perspective because fully informed consent. I think a lot of people may not have elected for those choices if they really realized what was happening to their bodies when they had organs removed that impact the hormonal regulation. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So speaking to the, you know, the the symptom of the very heavy periods and they can be very heavy. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to be clear, like the normal 
acceptable sort of maximum of menstrual fluid to lose during all the days of the period of the bleed is about is 80 milliliters. So to put that in perspective, that's like the content of two small eggs. That's the way I talk about it now. So one egg is like 45 mils or something. So just kind of picture that. So if, and some women can lose up to, this is, you know, on the high end of very, very high end, but let's say up to 500 mils. So the difference between 80 and 500, right? So it's, it can become crazy. And fortunately, most women don't experience that. Two thirds of us, our periods just are, stay the same or lighten. So it's not a universal experience, but I think there's different risk factors, certainly that can put women at risk of those I call them the crazy heavy periods of perimenopause. And it's a challenging symptom, no question. So I'll just list a couple of natural treatments and then we'll ask to answer your questions about what to do if you've had a hysterectomy. So there are some period lightening strategies. I do. T- I have a whole chapter, as you saw in P- Hormone Repair Manual, a whole chapter about this actually, like some dietary strategies of often I say, try some time off cow's dairy because dairy has such a histamine. Actually, histamine plays quite a big role in... Um, heavy periods. And there's even one study where they used so interesting intravaginal antihistamine. So kind of wow. a localized antihistamine effect, try to lighten flow, which I found was super interesting because the uterine lining is full of mast cells. That's not to suggest that's the only cause of heavy periods, but then I talk about using certain supplements that can help. It's obviously important to stay on top of iron and don't become iron deficient because being iron deficient makes periods heavier, cruelly. And then you can use real progesterone to lighten flow. So this is actually maybe the beginning of our kind of hormone therapy conversation because yes, on offer generally has been progestins, which are analogs of progesterone. They're not progesterone. Progesterone is not a generic term like estrogen that can just refer to anything sort of progesterone-like at all. Progesterone is our own progesterone that we make or that we can take in the form of the product in the US is called Prometrium. It's by prescription. It's body identical or bioidentical or natural progesterone. And it can lighten flow. So you have to take quite a lot of it compared to a progestin. That's one of the, I guess, downsides to it. It could be a little more, it's more expensive than progestins. But for women, when that's the right solution, there's several advantages over progestins. You can actually get some side benefits, neurological benefits from progesterone that progestins just don't provide. Like progesterone is very tranquilizing. It's so sedating. Actually, you need to take it at bedtime or it make you feel very weird during the day, but it can help you sleep. It helps with the stabilize the nervous system, prevent migraines, re, you know, re, increase, improve the body's ability to cope with stress. Arguably the bold statement, but I'm actually just kind of, we can, in the show notes, we can put a link to Professor Pryor's blog post about this, but there's several lines of evidence that suggest that progesterone, real progesterone may reduce the risk of breast cancer, which is pretty important when you consider that most, probably not all, but almost most progestins slightly increase the risk of breast cancer. So there's a safety issue, you know, around that. So yeah, so that's a little blurb on heavy periods. I can, do you want me to talk about hysterectomy or do you want to ask me something about the No, I think what's really interesting for me is, so I am gluten grains and dairy free and in perimenopause, when I went dairy free, my periods got lighter Yes, and I lost the five pounds of fluff that seemed to be, I was incapable of losing. I had done all of the things. And so I know that for many people, they have a love and appreciation for dairy. I know it can also be very addicting. And so if anyone's experiencing dysfunctional uterine bleeding or has very heavy periods, 
it's really something to consider. And I find it absolutely fascinating that, you know, reading your book kind of put those two things together for me. And I started to reflect back, oh, when would I go dairy free? And oh yeah, that's when my periods got lighter. Not realizing there was this interrelationship between, you know, really looking at some of the important aspects that are specific to dairy and how that can impact, you know, balancing our hormones. I had never even considered that. And it's, so it's utterly fascinating that I'm now making these connections and certainly hopefully listeners are as well. If they've been on the fence about going dairy-free or doing a trial of of being dairy-free, I think it can be quite significant. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yes. So I'm through my lens. The problem with cow's dairy is A1 casein. It's a very specific molecule that depending on the individual, the person who's eating it may or may not form an inflammatory compound called BCM7. So not everyone does that. So dairy is about one in three of us, I think, who get an inflammatory reaction to normal cow's dairy. And then the two out of three who don't get that inflammatory reaction are kind of scratching their heads going, what's the big deal? Like dairy's fine. And that's obviously why the research is a little bit confused too. Because I think I will say for a lot of people, cow's dairy is fine and not inflammatory. But for those of us who it is inflammatory, it's a big deal, actually. It can make a huge difference to health. And fortunately, that some of the research is starting to tease that apart. Like the devil is in the details always, right? Like there's um, at Deakin University, there's a the Foods and Mood Center there. Is there. At least they have been. I hope it's still ongoing. A study into removing A1 casein for premenstrual mood symptoms and kind of looking at A1 versus A2 dairy. And I spoke to the researcher and he said, yeah, they're actually going to be checking for BCM seven in the urine. Like just to give an example of like how precise you have to be like removing dairy is only an effective intervention for those people who are reacting to it. And it's not an allergy. It's actually just this formation of an inflammatory compound. So this may be a little technical, but I guess what I would say is it's worth trying it for most people they can probably still have goat and sheep and other forms of dairy that doesn't have A1 casein. So down under, we call it in Australia, New Zealand, we call that A2 dairy. You can get that in the States now, I think. It's- yeah, you can get some A2 milk because I've seen it and I've actually thought yeah. about it. You know, I have a very pro dairy family and I'm yeah. just the weird one that doesn't. And so I've talked to them about maybe we should try this yeah. let's just to see, because if I have a genetic susceptibility, probably yeah. one of the two of my offspring do as well. Oh, you should just switch to A2. I mean, yeah. there's no reason not to, apart from it's sometimes a little bit more expensive, but it still has all the other nutritional benefits of normal dairy. And oh, well, the other thing is butter. And like butter has very little casein in general. And the other thing that doesn't have much casein is ricotta. So sometimes with my patients, if ricotta is popular, yeah. Just so this, is, you don't have to be totally dairy free usually, but going, trying avoiding normal A1 casein can be a game changer for some, like for some people, it's very dramatic actually, which in terms of periods and mood and even metabolism to some extent. So no, and definitely for myself, I always say the N of one is so powerful. And so when we're considering if there's a woman who is trying to navigate the trajectory of perimenopause and maybe her provider offers synthetic hormones versus an IUD versus an ablation versus looking at a hysterectomy, when you're working with your patients, I, I would imagine yeah. you're you're not offering synthetic oral contraceptives. And that's a whole separate tangential conversation because I see women in their mid-50s who are still taking oral contraceptives, which is a whole separate I talk, Well, hole. I talk about that in my book. Because yeah. just not to just to be clear, the pill is a high-dose hormone therapy. So 
which is kind of a whole other question itself. But yes, I mean, certainly by your 50s, why not switch to a lower dose body identical natural hormone therapy, which is the standard these days? Like why take those contraceptive drugs when they're riskier than modern hormone therapy and don't, not as nice in any way. And I mean, and also just to be clear, the withdrawal bleeds you have from the contraceptive pill are not periods. So you can easily go into menopause while you're taking the pill and not know it because you're having these drug bleeds, like pill bleeds. So I have yeah, a section in my book about that. Yeah, my, most of my patients get success with, in terms of heavy, heavy periods with progesterone, real progesterone, not all to be fair. I mean, obviously it's individual. So a lot of my patients would do a combination of dairy-free, maybe the supplement calcium deglucrate, natural progesterone and getting through till menopause, right? Because you know that the, it's only usually a few years of those heavy periods. You just have to get through. Some of my patients end up having a hormonal IUD if life, if it's just too hard, because it can be a lot of work, a lot of stuff to take, plus you're taking iron. And if you're dealing with very heavy periods, it can be a full-time job trying to manage that. So I totally get why some women would feel better on a hormonal IUD. The interesting thing about the hormonal IUD, so just to be clear, there's no progesterone in it. It's levonorgestrel. It's a progestin. Um, it's actually one of the kind of androgenic progestins. So that's why it can kind of worsen the perimenopausal weight gain that we've talked about, not in every case. And it, but it's mostly local, but you get some systemic effect from it, but it doesn't kind of shut down the ovaries or override ovarian or so the hormonal process, the way the pill would, for example. And you can also, just to be clear, you can have the hormonal IUD, plus take progesterone for migraines and sleep and other things. It's not an either or necessarily an either or situation. You can do both. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. 
WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators the mitochondria new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at timeline.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. I think it's really interesting because a lot of these options are left and there's no judgment in in what people decide to do. What I typically see is even if it's a progestin IUD or it's an ablation per se, or they get a partial hysterectomy, it may not fix the symptoms per se. Like if they are still having higher levels of estrogen and they're, you know, if we do testing, like here in the United States, we use the Dutch. I'm not sure if that's a test that you like or use with your own patients, but if we look at blood values and we examine how their estrogen metabolism is going, I've just come to see and find, and and certainly I'm not a, a GYN myself, but I just sometimes see that the symptoms may be addressed, but it doesn't necessarily fix the root cause of the issue, which is this relative estrogen dominance. And I say relative because we know in perimenopause, they get fluctuating. Like sometimes it can be high, sometimes it can be low and it may fluctuate during that perimenopausal period. Now, when you have patients that are at the point where maybe for several different reasons, they go on to have a partial or a full hysterectomy, can we speak to what is happening in the body? I know that, you know, based on what I've looked at research wise, Sometimes women are not fully informed when they have a full hysterectomy that they, in the next day may feel completely different with the loss of hormonal you know, regulation that's ongoing with removing of the ovaries and their uterus, et cetera. Yeah. Sure. Let's talk about that briefly. Well, of course, removing only the uterus and not the ovaries does not, should not have a huge effect on hormones. Officially it has kind of no effect on hormones, but there has been documented sort of a 
a decrease in progesterone production from that. I think it's just because the ovaries are a little bit affected. They're affected by the loss of, you know, structurally and potentially some change in blood supply once the uterus is gone. So just to be one thing that I talk about this in my book, but one thing I've found that can happen is if you, let's say you do have partial hysterectomy, so uterus removed, but ovaries left while you're still in the throes of perimenopause, what can be confusing is you you can have these, like, for example, quite intense premenstrual symptoms, but not know that's what's going on because there's no bleed to kind of give you the sense of timing. And so a lot of times I'll say to my patients, well, you're still cycling, obviously. Like, so you're still having like ovulation migraines and then mood and breast swelling and yet yeah, removing the, odor, the uterus doesn't change any of that process. And so that's one thing to understand. And so you can still obviously then still use all the treatments that some of them that we've talked about to help to stabilize estrogen. You can still take progesterone, even though you don't have a uterus, which kind of goes against the standard. But this is why I'm talking about net real progesterone. Prometrium has many other benefits besides just thinning the uterine lining. But then just to speak to your, yeah, having your ovaries out. Now that is a whole other thing. That is actually quite a serious thing to have done. I mean, not to overstate, not to be too dramatic, but you know, we have this, maybe this sense that, oh, our ovaries, we don't need them after menopause. They actually, we do. They still produce androgens, which we do need. Cause I mean, I sort of was speaking how testosterone can cause weight gain, but just to be clear, we need some level of testosterone and androgens. They're beneficial for general health, for mood, for bones as a sweet spot. And of course, after menopause, androgens are how we make estrogen kind of peripherally. So this is very clear in the research, actually. Women menopausal into their 50s and 60s, their general health can be impacted quite a lot by losing their ovaries, unfortunately. And it actually correlates with increased you know, risk of heart disease and dementia and other things like that, which can be helped by taking hormone therapy, but not entirely mitigated. I think it's because, actually, I think part of it's because we do get this baseline kind of androgen, estrogen production from our ovaries. So we, postmenopausal ovaries, we still need them, right? And I appreciate maybe there's some people listening who had no choice because of cancer risk or something like that. They had to have their ovaries out. So that can be the situation, even though doctors are trying to do it less than, they, they used to just whip them out with really no thought about what that might be. But modern day, they're pretty conservative, most doctors, and will only remove them if there's a clear risk. So yeah, in most cases, if the ovaries have been removed, unless there's a strong reason not to, you would almost always want to take some estrogen therapy at that point. I would argue estrogen and progesterone again, but because that's, yeah, can be quite a shock to the system. It's castration. Like it's different than menopause to lose your ovaries. No. And I, I think it's so important for women to understand, to have a full clinical sense of what's going to happen. My mom had, because of some risk factors, had both her ovaries and her uterus removed. Yeah. And I, I don't think it dawned on her, even though she's a nurse that several years later, all of a sudden she's starting to see some cognitive deficits yes. and she's starting to, she has, she's osteoporotic, significantly osteoporotic. Yeah. And she assumed, as I think many women do, that because she was using intravaginal estrogen, that that would protect her bones and protect her brain. And so one of the things that I have found so interesting, and I know that you mentioned Dr. Lisa Moscone in the book, yeah. and in her book, XX Brain is a book I talk about all the time. I think it's really important for women to understand that these hormones, if we don't have enough of them, there's a lot of estradiol and progesterone signaling in the brain that when we go into menopause, 
that can be impacted significantly. And I know you, you do a really beautiful job talking about brain health and why it's so important that we are cognizant of how to support our brains and support the HP access and, you know, getting more into the parasympathetic because our bodies really lean towards this inflammatory sympathetic dominant kind of existence. And certainly here in the United States where, you know, it's 24 seven, we have access to anything. It's kind of this hedonistic, get what you want at any time of the day or night. And that includes food. You know, we have something called Uber eats here, which is a terrible thing. DoorDash, (laughs) terrible concept, but I just start to reflect on the net impact on cognition, increasing rates of Alzheimer's. I mean, just really thinking thoughtfully so that women can make decisions based on, you know, education and inspiration and empowerment. So they're not, you know, getting to a point where they're 20 years into menopause and they're realizing they can't necessarily reverse what has already happened. Okay. Let's talk about estrogen in the brain and some of Lisa Moscone's work and another researcher, Roberta Brenton, who I, I do quote in the book. So first of all, just to, re- you mentioned vaginal estrogen, vaginal estrogen is amazing. It's awesome. Like I think I pretty much think everyone should, well, if, you, if you're at all inclined, you know, use that for just vaginal health and lubrication and um, it's very safe and easy, but it doesn't offer systemic estrogen support. It doesn't. And to the point that actually one thing about vaginal estrogen is it's now considered widely and officially considered to be safe, even with a history of breast cancer. So that's important to know because the experts have, the scientists have looked at this and they've decided, no, there's just such minimal systemic estrogen coming from that, that it can be used. So that's, yeah. So vaginal estrogen isn't going to do anything for bones or brain health. In terms of brain health, let's talk. Yeah, because the brain loves estrogen. There's no question. I mean, est- the brain loves estradiol. It does a lot of things, but mainly what Lisa Moscone talks about in some of her research, they talk about the energetic system of the brain and how. Est- so, for example, the mitochondria everywhere in the body, but especially in, including in the brain, love estradiol. They just kind of can't get enough of it, and so that enhances insulin sensitivity. That enhances brain energy. So this is where in their Moscone and Roberta Brinton's research, if I've, you know, hopefully I'm quoting it right, they, one of the things they found is that with the drop, eventual drop in estrogen with the menopause transition, keeping in mind in the early, especially the earlier phases of perimenopause, it's actually spiking up really high and then cascading, you know, dropping down and that drop can cause symptoms as well. But eventually, obviously, we do get to a lower level than we had when we were in our reproductive years, not zero, like we still, our serum levels are about 10% of what they were. And then of course we make estrogen locally in cells. So that's really important. Like if our cells are healthy, we can make enough estradiol inside our locally in our cells to provide the body with what it needs. Because obviously estrogen is important for men and children and everyone. Like we've all got this baseline level of estrogen, but what happens is it's the calibration, right? Like it's the adjustment. So what they found in their research is that with the eventual drop in estrogen, especially in those early months or years of that transition, there's up to a 25% drop in brain energy measurable on scans, right? Like they can see the brain kind of lighting up. So this it's actual, I mean, that's a little frightening, obviously for all of us who have to go through this process. It's like, ouch, that's real. This is the cognitive symptoms that we can get 
during the perimenopause transition. It's like forgetting. I think the example I used in my book is I forgot where I parked my car one day, like not, not permanently, but I've just kind of had this real muddled moment of what is going on. So that's a known thing. And that is from the, essentially what physiologically what's going on. It's um, losing us, you know, reduction in estradiol. Our brain cannot access glucose for energy the way it used to be able to. It still can, obviously, but not to the extent. We don't have that su- insulin sensitizing superpower of estradiol that we had when we were, you know, reproductive years. So the brain has really no choice but to become metabolically flexible. Well, it needs to become metabolically flexible to access more ketones to kind of compensate for this reduced ability to use turn glucose into energy. Now, just circling back to what we said at the beginning, like, you know, prehistorically in a more traditional diet lifestyle, no insulin resistance, like those individuals probably make sense to you. Like they were more metabolically flexible. Their brains potentially during this process would have been like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have to use more ketones for energy and they could access ketones, you know, they could do that. But because of, again, this evolutionary mismatch and a lot of us tending to insulin resistance for a combination of reasons, some of which are outside our control, the brain is really struggling. And one of the research papers, and this, I will quote, I sometimes quote this, I sometimes don't, I'm not sure how much it scares people, but Roberta Brinton, one, a colleague of Lisa Moscone, I think I've got this right. She had a, a paper where, she, or like a study where she looked at, she found that if the brain cells can't kind of access ketones the way they need them during this sort of energy crisis spread over, you know, some months, it will, the brain cells will potentially cannibalize the myelin to get ketones. So myelin is the fatty coating over our brain cells. It's like, I need some kind of energy. I'm going to like grab that. For me, that was a very vivid image. And I put this, I can't remember if I put this quote in the book or not, but one of my, in my house, one of the quotes is, you know, we sometimes have, we usually don't have dessert, but we sometimes occasionally do. And sometimes, you know, I'm tempted. And, but then I'll say to my husband, yeah, I'm not going to have that dessert because I don't want my brain to eat itself. That's the sort of cannibalizing of the myelin, which it potentially can happen if I, you know, with reduced metabolic inflexibility. So I, I don't want to overstate that. You know, I think there is some wiggle room in this, but a lot of it comes down to just being conscious that this is the tipping point for metabolism, right? Like th- if there's ever a time to be metabolically flexible, and it sounds like your audience knows what I mean by that if there was ever a time to focus on it's now it's during this transition with estrogen. And of course, estrogen therapy does increase metabolic flexibility. So that's true. Whether we need that, you know what? I don't think every woman needs that. I think it is a real effect. And one thing I'd like to see in the research is again, it's about the devil in the details, like getting teasing this apart and making sense of this. So when they're researching, does estrogen therapy reduce the risk of heart disease, for example, reduce the risk of dementia? I mean, I think it does in many ways, but I think what would be even more important would be to look at of the participants in the studies who had insulin resistance and who did not. Because I think the really metabolically healthy women who don't have insulin resistance, they've got lots of muscle mass, they're good, you know, they're burning ketones some of the time, their brain is healthy. I seriously doubt they need estrogen the way women who have insulin resistance do. So in terms of longer term. Yeah, yeah no, that's a really interesting statement because it makes sense. I have colleagues of mine who are in their 60s 
are not on HRT and are so sharp and just yeah. doing so well. And they're, they are met, very metabolically flexible. And so that seems yep. to be the case that, you know, for me, I take progesterone and that works really well for me right now. And I'm very metabolically healthy, but that's much more aligned with, you know, bio-individuality and really yeah. looking at who is metabolically rigorous. There are a couple of things I want to make sure that we touch on, yeah. but also being very yeah. respectful of your health. There are certain aspects of your book that really resonated. And one in particular was talking about alcohol. It's almost like the elephant in the room. There's a huge mommy drinking culture there by no means, there's no judgment in what I'm saying, but I know for me, not being someone that drinks alcohol any longer, I do find that can be very triggering for people. And I try very hard to come from a very objective place to talk about what alcohol does in the body. And that one section in particular for me really resonated. In fact, I talked to my team and said, you know, Dr. Lara Brighton has this great section talking about the research on yeah. what alcohol does to our bodies. And I would love to at least touch briefly on this because I do sure. get a lot of questions. I think many people feel a sense of social pressure to drink and maybe they would prefer not drinking. And I always say it's very much a bio-individual decision but I think for women navigating middle age, sometimes we have to reflect on some of those habits. And I just find for a lot of women that are struggling with weight loss resistance and blood sugar dysregulation, that sometimes the alcohol piece is what's driving a lot of what's going on. I know. All right. So just to be clear with the research, you know, we used to have this, oh, moderate drinking is good for you. Yeah. That ship has sailed. That's not a thing pretty much. I mean, I talk about that in the book and some of the, the debunking of that, because that was just bad statistics, basically kind of shoddy. So there's no good amount of it. Like there's no alcohol is not healthy in any amount, but I think like some of us can get away with some amount. There's an amount we can get away with, right? That's because it's pleasurable. So I get that. And I think there's for some people, depending on where they are in their life and who they are, you know, some amount of alcohol in the week is probably not a big deal. For perimenopause, the stakes are higher. Our nervous system is recalibrating. We've talked about this. Our brain is recalibrating. Alcohol interferes with that. All of us have the experience. You mentioned it earlier, of like it affecting sleep and hot flushes. So for me personally, I have this little thing. It's like, oh, I could have this beer with dinner, which I would really enjoy, but then I'll wake up all sweaty at 3 a.m. So actually I'd rather sleep through the night and not have it. So that's, there's the immediate effect on sleep that night, but there's also what we know from the research is a longer term effect. Alcohol can have a negative effect on circadian rhythm. And one of the challenges with perimenopause is our circadian rhythm is changing. It's not as robust. It needs a lot more support. Like it needs that light in the morning. It needs, you know, well-timed protein. It needs dark at night and all the things just to try to keep our circadian rhythm going and alcohol disrupts circadian rhythm. So that's the other just fact about alcohol, which is important and it is a breast cancer risk. So not a huge one, like all kind of risks, you know, it's relatively small, but moderate alcohol is as risky as modern estrogen therapy in terms of breast cancer risk. So just to put that in perspective, like if people are afraid of taking estrogen, well, depending on what we can talk about the types of estrogen, but, and hormone therapy, but uh, you know, more than probably four or five drinks in a week is a bigger risk than that estrogen would be. So that kind of puts it in perspective as well. And yeah, alcohol pretty clearly impairs metabolic flexibility. I, even to a greater extent than I realized actually, since I've written the book, I've seen some more research about that. So it's not friendly. 
to health in any way. I still, I'm mostly like you, like I mostly don't drink. I, I do have the occasional drink now that I'm 52, right? Because my last period was like a year and a half ago. So I am feeling now, I mean, that nice starting to, I think, get into that more stable time where I can have a drink and I don't really notice an effect, but I still prefer to have a robust circadian rhythm and good health going forward. So I think I'll stick with mostly not drinking. Yeah. It's interesting how I always say that it's, I'm fully adulting now because my sleep has become such a large focus of how I perceive the world, how I go about my day, et cetera. And much like yourself, I choose not to drink because my sleep has just become something I really prioritize. Now, when we're looking at HRT, when we're looking at hormone replacement therapy, there are so many options and, you know, whether it's estrogen or progesterone here in the United States, there's no FDA approved testosterone, but there are plenty of women that are taking testosterone and we can touch on, you know, why that sometimes happens. I always say, look upstream. If your testosterone is low, be looking at the other things that can precipitate that happening. What are, so if we kind of speak from a broad-based perspective, what have you found in clinical practice to be the best tolerated least side effects options available for women. Yeah. And, and certainly I think this is important because women can then take this information and go to their GYNs or their OBs or whomever they're seeing and have a, an ongoing discussion with them about what is going to work best for them. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's dive into this. It's kind of our, you know, finale topic today. It's a good one. It's important. So one thing I don't use the word replacement therapy anymore. Generally, it's referred to as menopausal hormone therapy, which I think is more appropriate because replacement implies, it immediately implies that it's replacing something like that it's an abnormal situation and we need to replace it when actually the lower hormones of menopause is a normal situation. So just to be clear, I mean, it can also cause symptoms for reasons we've spoken about. So yeah, in terms of hormone therapy, one very good thing is that we have arrived at bioidentical. I mean, it's hard for me. So I've been doing this for 25 years. So it's not that long ago. I mean, depending on which country you're in, 10 or only less than 10 years in Australia, actually, but 10 or 15 years, depending on where you are, which country you're in, they were saying like back then it was like, oh no, natural progesterone is not a thing. You know, progestins are fine. There's no difference between progestins and progesterone. That was this talking point. You know, anyone advocating for progesterone, like I was doing back then was that was considered pseudoscience basically. So here's an example of how we've seen the progression. I didn't think it would take this long, but it has finally arrived. The official recommendations, the ones that just even came out last week around hormone therapy, all state oral micronized progesterone, real progesterone, AKA body identical, bioidentical, natural progesterone is safer than a progestin in terms of breast cancer risk. It has lots of other benefits as we've talked about. So that's finally here. Like that was, you know, it took a couple decades, but that's good. So you can now usually in the conversation with the doctor, most women are by default now offered bioidentical or natural hormones. And that was not the case 20 years ago at all. So that also speaks to the old research, like the Women's Health Initiative. That was, those were not bioidentical hormones. That was, we're now like comparing apples and oranges. That was a different set of drugs that were being used. They did have some, that was like a, I mean, some of those progestins that were being used were not safe, I would say. But so usually you don't even have to go to a natural doctor or anything like that. Most cases, if you just go to your normal doctor, you're going usually be prescribed 
Permetrium, or depending on what country you're in, it goes by different brand names, Eutrogestin, that's the real progesterone, plus an est- a bioidentical body identical estradiol patch or gel. Like, so that's through the skin. So either wear a patch or use the gel and that's natural estrogen as well. And so those are kind of a, that's the mainstay of hormone therapy. I have a blog post myself called a safer type of hormone therapy, where I just explain a bit more about the bioidentical, the history of that and the terminology and why it was controversial and how it never should have been. And so that fortunately that's good for women today. We're getting much better options on offer than what women 20 years ago had. So that's good. You have to still read the label. I mean, some doctors might still be prescribing the old school Premarin or Progestin. So you just have to look at it and then ask for what I say to my readers is just then say, well, is there a reason that I wasn't given, you know, offered kind of the more modern recommendations? And I mean, there may be certain circumstances where the preferable body identical hormones are not the first choice, but for most women, it should be. So that's clear. And also we referred earlier, I'm a big fan of using progesterone on its own. You talked about that. Professor Geraldine Pryor advocates for progesterone on its real progesterone on its own, potentially through perimenopause and even into menopause can relieve, help to relieve night sweats and hot flushes. And, and even if often what I'll say is maybe do progesterone on its own for a while and then add in estrogen if you need it, add in the estrogen patch. And that can actually doing it in that order can actually help to tolerate estrogen as well and feel better on estrogen. And that's true, even if you don't have a uterus, and that's the more controversial part of what I'm saying, but this is because of progesterone's benefits on the breasts and brain. And and then in terms of hormone therapy, testosterone, yeah, it's interesting. I have sort of a reputation of being anti-testosterone. I'm not, I, you know, I acknowledge that testosterone, especially potentially topically can help with libido. I think that's, you know, a reasonable option if women want to look at that. You just need to be careful though, because testosterone can cause weight gain. Usually that shouldn't happen if it's a low enough dose and it's in combination with estrogen and progesterone because they have an anti-testosterone effect. So it's context dependent, but too much testosterone can cause weight gain for sure. So it's just something to be thinking about. The other hormone that I kind of wish was more on the radar is DHEA. So it was on the radar about 15 or 20 years ago, and then kind of went through a couple of clinical trials and just got dropped. And yet I feel like it's probably logically, you know, in terms of hormone therapy, I think it's more logical to take that than testosterone, but the research is not there for it. Unfortunately, I don't know how many of your listeners might be taking DHEA. Yeah. So. No, and it's really helpful to hear your perspective. You know, again, I think when I talk to women, it is so clear that the women's health initiative and the resultant information that was shared and the faulty data that was shared has really influenced an entire generation of clinicians and it's made women in many instances, very fearful about a menopause therapies. I'm going yes. to start changing, yeah. changing that vernacular. <laughs> Menopausal hormone therapy. Yes, I yes, will. Yes. I will give you full credit for that. Yeah. But I think it's important for us to have those conversations and to sit yeah. down with our clinicians and to explain like what our goals are and what we're looking yeah. for. And so I'm so very grateful for the opportunity to connect with you and that somehow we both ended up in the same hemisphere uh, during the summer please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to get your amazing books. Um, They're obviously ones I reference quite frequently. Thank you for all the work that you do. I really have to say that I read a lot. And so my my listeners know this. And if I find a book that I'm referencing frequently or it's causing me to go down a rabbit hole to read more about something, I learned about the supplement taurine through you and and do now recommend it quite a bit. So thank you for that. But let my listeners know how to connect with you outside the podcast. 
Okay. Thanks, Cynthia, for the feedback and the lovely conversation. Yeah, I'm easy to find. So my books are, well, the book we've been talking about is Hormone Repair Manual. That's for women 40 plus. My first book is called Period Repair Manual, which is for younger women, essentially, although there is a chapter on perimenopause, but it's more for women in their 20s and 30s trying to navigate coming off the pill and all kinds of different challenges. And then my blog is larabryden.com. So that's also very easy to find. I have a podcast, which is just me talking, me like kind of spouting off on different topics. And then all my social media is at Lara Bryden. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time today. It really has been a pleasure. And like I mentioned, I was doing an Insta story earlier today and I was saying I have five pages of notes. So literally I could have continued talking to you for hours on end about so many different topics. Hopefully we'll be able to reconnect uh, later in the year or in 2023. Sounds good. We'll have to be part two. Thanks, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 